Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new, albeit very weird, episode of the Polykill Podcast. I'm Travis, and I'll be joined by Jake here in just a minute. We're shifting gears here. We're splicing each other in. We can't be together. The world will not allow it. But no, really, seriously, the reason we're not recording this time around is because we're very busy in very specific ways. And that means we've not had a lot of time to play games. We'd have nothing to talk about. And if you can imagine, that would be even less to talk about than we usually do. And that's not good. You know what I mean? So, all of the discussions, the just beat it, the poly killers, and whatever else we usually do, that'll be next episode. This episode, to prove to you that Jake and I are still committed to podcasting, we're going to let you in on some secrets. So... This thing that we have going on here, what is this? A network? I don't know. I hesitate to use the word network, but it does make me feel good, so maybe I will. This podcasting umbrella that we have going on, really anything that Jake and I touch, is considered within our little network, right? So we have Polykill Proper, what you're listening to currently. We have Off Kilter, which sometimes comes out if Brian decides to edit one. You never know. And then Drunk Friend, through a partnership with our friend Snest Drunk which has been great. And then we have more coming. We have more coming. And so we're going to share those, one featuring myself, one featuring Jake. So I will go first, okay? Sorry, Jake. I'll go first. My new podcast, because the world needs more podcasts. Hey, I don't mean to belabor this. The world needs more. What are you doing over there? Not listening to a podcast, probably. Well, if there was another one, maybe you would. Okay, here we go. Mine is called Tales of the Lesser Medium. Tales of the Lesser Medium. I'll enunciate it twice just to be sure you got it in case you were writing it down. Okay, this is a tandem exercise with myself and my friend, Caleb J. Ross. Do you know Caleb? You should know Caleb. If you listen to this podcast, if you're in our Discord, if you follow any of us on Twitter, you should certainly know who Caleb J. Ross is. He is first and foremost a father I don't know. No, he is. He is also uh, an author. He's written books. He has also made some videos in his day. He's, he's what you might consider a YouTuber. And he also likes to tweet about his PlayStation Network trophies as if anyone gives a damn. And I don't think they do. But great guy. So he and I decided that, you know what sucks? Video game narratives. They're just not good. There's so much button pressing in the way and... Video games just inherently aren't very good at telling stories. They try. A lot of them try really hard. But it's often convoluted, very illogical at times, and sometimes just absurd. And so we're going to condense those, and then we're going to make fun of them and have fun doing all of that. And so we have the first series recorded. We're going to do these in franchise series. The first one is on Resident Evil. And so our first four episodes that we're going to be releasing are on the Resident Evil games that take place in the Arclay Mountains. And that is Resident Evils 1, 2, 3, and 0. So on Memorial Day, I think it is, I always get Memorial Day and Labor Day confused, which means I'm un-American probably. But I know you eat hot dogs on both, and it's usually very hot on both, and something about those days affects the pool the public pool system. Anyway, on the day after Memorial Day, go look at some memorials, get a hot dog down in you, drink some beer, let the nitrates really seep into your bones. And then the day after that, 
you can recover with a brand new podcast. It's called Tales of the Lesser Medium. And now that I've already given you the intro, I'm going to share just a snippet, maybe 10, maybe 15 minutes in the middle. I'm going to skip right to the meat and bones and the potatoes, meat, bones, and potatoes. I'm going to skip right in there. I'm going to let you hear it. All right. There's also, I'm, going, I'm sorry to belabor it. I'm really sorry to, to either, is it, is it belabor or, or memorial it? There's also a Twitter account attached to this uh, podcast. You don't have to follow it. You don't have to. I'm not telling you what to do. You do what you do you. But if you wanted to, it's at Tales Lesser. I'll be honest, though. If you follow me, if you follow Caleb, if you follow Polykill, you won't need it. But just in case. Okay. All right, here we go. And then after this, it'll be Jake's. It'll be Jake's thing. Jake's thing's really good. Her counterpart, Chris Redfield joined the United States Air Force when he was 17 and learned to fly both planes and helicopters. During this time, he served alongside his eventual best friend, Barry Burton. I want to dig into why that's eventual. Like, <laughs> like it took some time. Uh, it took quite a while. Uh, they hated each other. Like, why is this eventual? Maybe that's something we need to dig in, like some, uh, some side episode where we get into the relationship between Chris Redfield and Barry Burton. Like, what was going on? Were they roommates for a while and one of them was just obnoxious and, you know, his, he was too loud in the bunk or something? And then once they moved apart, they, you know took a class together and ended up liking one another because they could cheat off each other on the math test or something. I don't really know, but I feel like there's a good arc there we could really dig into. I think we should. I imagine that they were college roommates. Um, they didn't know each other prior. They arrived, and on the way up to the college, Barry was talking with his mom, his mom driving up to mm. college, and he's saying, boy, this is going to be so much fun. I just can't <laughs> wait until college. I'm very excited. I've got my, my chemistry set and my rock collection. Oh, my gosh. And I got brand new uh, hearing aids that are finely tuned for very low frequency volume of music. So I hope, I hope the guy I'm rooming with doesn't like loud music. And then he gets there. Right before he gets there, Chris Redfield kicks the door open in front of him and is like, fuck yeah, party! Turns on some Andrew W.K. and just goes crazy. Yeah, just starts uh, just starts curling a 45-pound weight right in front of him, yeah. Uh, I, I tell you, though, based on your character, your young Barry Burton, he's going to go through a transformation here in a minute that people aren't going to understand. <laughs> <laughs> he, he learned to overcome his speech of Exactly. Maybe. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> he might have overcompensated a little bit. <laughs> All right. So let's see. Where were we? His eventual best friend, Barry Burton. Uh, he often got into squabbles with upper command because of his strong convictions and love of Andrew W.K. and eventually <laughs> resigned in protest, but may have also been discharged for insubordination. It's unclear which. Mm-hmm. He began drifting and didn't really have any aspirations for gainful employment, despite being trained to use a variety of weapons and being known for his ability with knives in hand-to-hand combat. Mm-hmm. He even won contests for marksmanship. Later in 1996, he was scouted by stars and was eventually given the position of point, of point man for the Alpha Team. Point man. That's that's esteemed. <laughs> and I love, I love uh, he had no ambitions, no aspirations to contribute to society at all, uh, but he had access to weapons and the skills to use them, and Alpha Team thought, bingo, this is the guy <laughs> we want on our team. This guy seems uh, dangerous. Should be, he be in the front? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> he kicks indoors pretty well. That's what Barry says, anyway. I mean, you're, you're getting pretty judgmental, Caleb. We can't all just write a few short stories and call it quits. I mean, plus, dude learned how to fly planes and helicopters before he was 20. Before I was 20, I couldn't even dress fly. I mean, sure, I was a white guy, so the odds were stacked against me, but still, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> Some might say you dressed pretty fly for a white guy, I would say. I mean, fairly fly, even. <laughs> I wonder if he can fly drones. I wonder when the drones came around. He's like, there's a third thing I got to learn. God damn it. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, probably not, though. All right. Up next is Dr. Albert Wesker, who originally recruited Jills for stars. He was raised as part of a eugenics project led by a researcher known only as Wesker, of whom 13 children assumed the, the surname. So Wesker is not Albert's true last name, but is the name he obtained as a lab rat child. <laughs> he was indoctrinated by Umbrella Pharmaceutical CEO Dr. Oswell Spencer and was involved in several nefarious projects. Eventually, due to a series of strange circumstances, Albert decided to leave Umbrella and gain employment elsewhere. Pizza Hut, probably. Yeah. He joined the U.S. Army in 1991 and was eventually assigned to be a special tactics member of STARS in Raccoon City. As a side note, remember STARS is funded by Umbrella as a private army to protect their laboratories. That's how I'm pronouncing it. That's how you should pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe he did work at Pizza Hut. That, would, that seems like a good stop. You know, everybody's got that middle stop where they hit like they hit something right there in mm-hmm. the middle, you know? You don't just go he from wants one less responsibility. Yeah, yeah, you know, just take a little break or, you know, save the money up a little bit. Uh, it's it's kind of sad about Albert Albert Wesker uh, going down the path of darkness. Um, but good news is his lab rat siblings all became lawyers and started Wesker, 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 and Johnson. The youngest, the youngest girl got married there, but uh, good for them. <laughs> I'd call them. Yeah. And lastly, as mentioned, Barry Burton met Chris while they were both enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. Ah, oh, damn it, it can't be this college thing. Uh, Barry left the Air Force to join STARS, where he employed his vast knowledge of weaponry. Once his pal Chris became a drifter, working at Pizza Hut, of course. Barry reached out to Chris and urged him to join STARS as part of STARS. Barry is tasked with maintaining and supplying weapons for the Alpha Team. Maintaining and supplying weapons, that's that's a heavy duty. That's heavy responsibility for being, you know, part of the Alpha Team. They use a lot of weapons. Uh, he had to do other stuff, too. He had to uh, do their laundry uh, and make their beds. Uh, but it was really worth it because one day he's going to be so in. Yeah, they're going to be like, dude, he's he's really putting in the work. I mean, come on. Let's cut him, <laughs> cut him some slack. Uh, I, I always kind of picture Barry. You picture Barry as kind of this, like, bumbling doofus um, that it just had braces for forever, like, never not had them. Like, every time he would go back to the orthodontist, they're like, just a little bit more, man. I think you're, you're getting there. You're getting there. But I, I, I always kind of envisioned Barry as, as more of just like a – kind of a, a dim-witted stone cold like hey name is barry burton couldn't help but notice your last name is redfield and that does nothing but remind me of waking up on a soggy dewy morning traipsing out to the meadow and unloading my artillery of mostly illegal firearms on pack of unwitting deer the babies do i love guns like he just it's all about guns with barry this is an interesting glass half full half half empty kind of case because notice he focused on bragging about the illegal part of his firearm collection yeah. it's not because really if you're mostly <laughs> illegal that means some of them are legal right. why not lead with that yeah. uh, it's, it's very telling of this guy oh, so as they enter the mansion they are taken aback by its size and decor barry exclaims what is this and wesker also adds wow what a mansion <laughs> Neato! Then suddenly, Jill realizes... Yeah, we're sticking with that voice. I like it. Then suddenly, Jill realizes Chris isn't among them. Believing him to still be outside, she runs for the door, but Wesker orders her to stop. 
A gunshot rings out, and Barry offers to accompany Jill in getting Chris. Eventually, Wesker steps up and says he'll handle it. If you play the game as Chris, it is Barry who becomes separated and does not enter the mansion. Um, At this point, the team is split up to investigate. And it's important to note that every time there's a gunshot... Barry gets a little more erect. That's just something to keep in mind as we power through this narrative. This dude loves guns. <laughs> so, so is he? So, if we were to extrapolate this timeline here, and we were to say at the beginning he's flaccid, yeah. At the end, rock hard. Oh yeah. That means for most of the game, he's half chubbing it along as he's like limping along, saving Jill. Pretty much. Right? Like, yeah. That's pretty much. Thanks for that mental image. I appreciate yeah. that. All right. So now we're in the mansion. Let's talk about this mansion a little bit because it is a mansiony mansion. So the plans for the mansion began in 1962 when a wealthy British earl and aristocrat, Oswell E. Spencer, approached architect George Trevor with his plan. Spencer wanted to use the mansion as a lab for top-secret, highly illegal, inhumane experimentation, which included manufacturing bioweapons in the basement. After completion of the mansion's construction in November of 1967, very quick turnaround, mm. five years, wow, Indeed. Spencer held the architect captive in the mansion to be sure the floor plans of the entire layout, especially of the top-secret laboratory, and all the hidden passages would not be revealed to anyone. Fearing Spencer would eventually kill him, Trevor remained hidden away in the mansion, being the only other person with intimate knowledge of its layout. It is presumed that George Trevor eventually died in the mansion somewhere in the walls. Wow, in the walls. You'd think a guy that had a pretty intimate knowledge of the layout, though, wouldn't have to die in the walls. He would know where, like, where the exits are, too, right? <laughs> That's true. And, I, and depending on how much you want to skew the word intimate, um, I would think only part of him would have died in the wall. Like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I love I love the the dying in the walls trope. Uh, that's some like cask of Amontillado stuff and Edgar Allan Poe story that I really love. And uh, I think it was brought up in like fallout four. They talked about it. Cause that takes place in Boston where Edgar Allan Poe's from oh, wow. um, portal, the portal games with Ratman in the walls takes off, takes that a lot. So I love it. I love it. It's, it's weird and gross and weird and gross, but I love it. I'm into that too, man. I once read a book about a woman with a foot protruding from her abdomen. <laughs> You know, so <laughs> you sick freak. What kind of what kind of bookshelf examples are you setting for your child? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Meanwhile, his daughter, Lisa Trevor, and wife, Jessica Trevor, were taken to the lab to become test subjects for the progenitor virus, a basis for the bioterrorist agent known as the T virus, which we'll get to later. So hold to hold on to your hats. Uh, Jessica, the wife, was unresponsive to the viral injection and was terminated as a consequence. She should have just responded to it, man. <laughs> Saved your life. Anyway, Lisa showed promising results and was experimented on for years. Ooh. She eventually developed a habit of removing the faces of her victims wow. and wearing them over her own. Jeez. I get it, man. I have a habit of chewing on my fingernails, so it's kind of the same. I'm an alcoholic, so yeah. <laughs> man, we all have our demons. Yeah. <laughs> I, have a, I have a feeling we'll, uh, we'll hear back. He'll hear from Lisa more in a bit, Yeah, my guess. Yeah, oh, yeah. All right. Let's talk about these zombies. This is supposed to be a zombie game, right? We haven't talked about a single zombie yet. <laughs> so back to the story. All right, everyone. That was the that was a little snippet of Tales of the Lesser Medium. I hope you liked it. Again, catch all four of the first episodes out everywhere. You can catch a podcast on May 26th. Take it away, Jake. <laughs> Well, that was fun. Hey, guys, it's Jake. 
as you probably have heard at the top of this here weirdo episode, Travis and myself have been separated by a great gulf of social distancing, work, and many other things. So us syncing up for another episode has been a bit of a challenge, so we decided to do something a little off the beaten path. So he did mention that I was working on something new. If you are in our Patreon, you already know what this is. Um, if not, well, here goes. So it should be uh, obvious to many of you that music is a bit of a passion of mine. It's sort of my uh, ever-present hobby. It's something that's always in my ears. I tweet about it and talk about it and always find a way to bring it up and conversation, even when people find it awkward and stare at the ground while I just keep listing subgenres of music that they should listen to because I feel like they would appreciate its sensibilities. So anyway, with all of that in mind, I decided to start a podcast about music, and the podcast is just me, at least for now. Uh, at some point, I could bring on other people to discuss things with or sort of interview them about music or have conversations um, about how music has affected them. But for now, it's just me, and it's sort of starting out uh, as uh, a bit of a chronicling of my history with music. Um, the first episode, which is more of a prologue, is on our Patreon now. I'm going to figure out the logistics of uh, getting a full launch here pretty soon. Uh, but the idea here is a podcast about looking at music through the lens of emotion and ideas rather than uh, the sonic aspects of genre or um, some other qualifier of how to categorize music. I'm calling the podcast Music That Makes Me, and uh, the idea here is that music is constantly making me. It's, it's reshaping the way I think and the way I look at the world, and uh, each episode is going to be fairly self-contained and discuss a very single idea about uh, music and We'll see how it goes and see where it goes from here. Uh, but I'll go ahead and slice in a bit of a snippet from episode zero, the prologue, to give you an idea of kind of what I'm talking about. And uh, we will see you next time. Thanks for stopping by for this weird little episode. So the Dobro became a bit of a fascination of mine, mainly because of Jerry Douglas, but there was another player named Rob Ikes, and he played in a bluegrass band called Blue Highway. And Rob did a solo project called Hard Times. It had a lot of traditional bluegrass sounds on it, but then he followed it up with one called Slide City. And it was a vast departure from Hard Times that came before it. It is an urban jazz fusion album uh, in which the Dobro is prominently featured, and I had never heard anything like this before. Imagine this kid who only listened to bluegrass hearing a jazz cover of Blind Faith's classic Can't Find My Way Home. So at this point, my musical horizons were widening quite a bit. I was listening to a lot of music that I wouldn't have before, and this got reinforced even more when I started working and having people around me that had sort of distinct and crystallized musical tastes. I was around people that enjoyed classic rock from the 60s and 70s, people that enjoyed country music, both classic and modern. And then I was around people who were more into the edgier side of things. And that meant everything from what I would consider radio rock, like Breaking Benjamin and Three Days Grace, to bands that were a little further off the beaten path in the punk scene. And for me, off that beaten path was a band called Flogging Molly. 
This was a band that I could really connect with for a couple of reasons. One, if you've ever seen them, they put on a fantastic live show. And if you ever have the chance to see them live, you definitely should. It's a great evening filled with lots of dancing, lots of jumping around. Uh, People bring their kids, their grandmother, the priest shows up. It's a great time. But anyway, another reason I could connect with Flogging Molly so well is the instrumentation they used is stuff that I was already familiar with. There was a lot of banjo, mandolin, fiddle, bass, and even the accordion. So even though I was a little bit uneasy with all the energy they brought initially, I really came to love going to their shows. If you ever want to feel good, just listen to the song Rebels of the Sacred Heart. It'll make you feel like you're one of them. So you would think that after I fell in love with Flogging Molly that punk would have been my thing. And granted, I did have a short fling with that style of music, but it didn't last too long. I remember watching some VH1 shows about metal, and that's when things started really taking a turn for the worst, in a good way. I remember watching their documentaries on the origins of metal, top metal albums that you should listen to, seeing interviews with people like Scott Ian and Sebastian Bach, and I got really intrigued by what they were doing. Now granted, this is a massive departure from where I started. Remember just a few minutes ago, I was listening to